American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Now, the master manipulator who uh, gains full political advantage from all of, these, uh, all of these developments is probably Richard Nixon, elected president in 1968 as his Democratic uh, opponents sort of collapse in disarray, uh, resign from uh, the race like Lyndon Baines Johnson or are killed like uh, Robert Kennedy. In 1972, uh, he could have been worried uh, that he might face a really sustained and powerful opposition energized by things like the continuing Vietnam War and so on and so forth. But Nixon very carefully plays the cards of working class white resentment, particularly those uh, 30 and up uh, but, but not just those, uh, some of the younger ones as well, against the radicals, the long-haired hippies, the pot smokers, the draft dodgers, these other sort of caricatures that he is able to successfully claim make up the Democratic Party by 1972. And if you had to, if you had to guess, 1972 would surely be one of those elections when the fewest, uh, the smallest percentage of union members actually vote for the Democratic Party despite the long-term association between the Democrats and the AFL-CIO going back to the New Deal. This is, to a large extent, the disruption of that New Deal coalition that had reshaped American politics and American capitalism since the 1930s. And of course, there's another factor that is uh, detaching uh, people who, uh, based on their incomes, we would call working-class Americans is attaching them from working class identity, including unionization and a commitment to organized labor movements in the 1970s. And that's the fact that the generation that's coming into the workplace in the 1970s is the sort of full bloom of the baby boom generation, the people born after World War II as veterans return home and people start their lives again. Now this generation had come to the 1970s without the same kinds of experiences the generations that had survived the Great Depression or World War II had survived. And in particular, they are less likely to see commitment to big institutions like what the, the union movement had become. They're less likely to see that kind of commitment uh, as something that's really important to their identities. And there are lots of other dynamics as well as people are moving around the country, moving to the Southwest, moving to the Southeast. They're separating themselves geographically as well as mentally and culturally from their communities of origin. And it turns out those communities of origin, particularly those communities descended from immigrants and migrants that had moved to the United States or around the United States to work in particular industries, those were very important to the rise of the labor movement in the 1930s. With the increase in interregional mig migration in the 1970s, those kinds of ties start to dissipate. But one thing's for sure, once we enter the 1980s, in the wake of the big recession that, that really traumatizes the American economy in the 1980s, corporations go on the offensive against unions. And they're encouraged to do so, no doubt, by the political climate, uh, by the Reagan administration in certain tacit and explicit ways, undermining uh, the power of unions to negotiate, uh, and so on and so forth. But they're also very deliberate in their strategy. And it's a strategy that's a mirror of earlier strategies that unions had used. Unions had looked for a strike they could win, a big visible strike in a big important industry, and they figured that once they won that strike, other companies in the same industry, the auto industry or whatever, would go along and sign contracts. Well, the reverse is happening in the 1980s. 
as companies that feel particularly strong, that have a good, strong war chest, go after unions. Uh, they change the contracts. They impose new contracts on particular factories or mines or plants or what have you. Uh, and they essentially tell the unions, go ahead. We don't care if you strike. We think we'll win. And again and again in the 1980s, they win. Things like the Hormel meatpacking um, uh, plant strike in Wisconsin uh, in the mid-1980s turn out to be disasters uh, for unions. Again and again, unions are losing. And so if unions don't represent people culturally anymore, if people don't live in one place uh, and build up the kind of horizontal attachments to each other that, that drive unions and things like that, that, that make them strong, and if unions can't do anything for workers, well, increasingly, workers think they don't need to do anything for unions. And that, too, helps to explain some of the decline in unionization. Whether that kind of judgment is right on the part of workers or not is, of course, a different story. By the mid-2000s, only about 7% of American workers are part of a union. And that is the lowest figure recorded since 1930, at least. And that, in turn, radically transforms the experience of Americans at work and the relationship between workers uh, and the, the, the companies for whom they work. And so we see this uh, amazing transformation, this amazing, amazing change between 1948 uh, and the early 21st century, the decay of union labor to almost complete irrelevance. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.